Last week we talked about George Whitfield uh, in a gospel profile on a man who uh, tried to earn his way into heaven. He did lots of wonderful, great things, things that we would say are very Christian things, uh, and things that we would expect all Christians to do. In fact, if I put my life up against George Whitfield's life, even before he became a Christian, I look pretty bad. Um, you know, I kind of, my grandmother has a little comic on her refrigerator that says, uh, God, make me the person that my dog thinks I am. And, um, and that's the truth. So, I feel like I should copyright that. It's not mine. Uh, this morning, we are going to talk about uh, the Temptations, and that was a shameless marketing ploy because we're not going to talk about the band, uh, the Temptations, but we're going to talk about temp- Temptation in light of Romans chapter 7. Um, and uh, if um, Whitfield seems so good, um, why is it that I seem so bad? And uh, that may not necessarily be a bad thing, but before we go any further, let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks uh, for your great love for us, and it is exhibited in uh, that while we were yet sinners, uh, you died for us. And Lord, indeed, uh, we do the very thing that we do not want to do, and we find ourselves incapable of doing the very thing that we want to do. Uh, Who will rescue us from this body of death? Uh, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Several weeks ago, I was listening to uh, what is the most popular podcast on iTunes, This American Life, which is uh, a show on NPR, although it's not the most popular show on National Public Radio. Do you know what the most popular show, the most listened to show on NPR is? Car Talk. That's right. That's right. Which is uh, about to go off, not the air, but they're about to stop broadcasting originals. But this is the most popular podcast, and um, Ira Glass is a guy, and they come up with these sort of crazy stories um, about uh, people who like to shoplift in the villages in Florida um, and all kinds of crazy stuff and off-the-wall stuff. But one that caught my attention, and I immediately thought, Romans chapter 7, uh, when I heard it. So I'm going to play a brief clip, but before I do that, let me read to you uh, from Romans uh, chapter 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, that I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions." For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I want, do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. 
Okay. So we'll listen to a little clip, and what I want you to think of as you listen to it is uh, human nature. I didn't see this one happen, but uh, Ben, one of the producers here at This American Life, he saw it. He was in the newsroom uh, here at our home station, WBEZ Chicago, one day when Dan Blumberg arrived for work. And Dan walks in, and he's just swollen, like, everywhere. Like, his, his eye, like, here, I'm gonna, I'll do the face. It's always like, oh, wow, you're popping out your cheeks <laughs> and squinting your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, his ears were like cauliflower. We're like, Dan, are you okay? And he says, uh, it's okay. Last night I ate some crab. And everybody's reaction is, of course, oh, you're allergic. You need to go to the hospital. <laughs> and um, he's like, no, 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 this this happens pretty regularly because I I love crab. And I'm allergic, but it only happens one out of every three times. What? <laughs> yeah. It was a calculated risk. One out of every three times, he would turn into like the state puff marshmallow man. Yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose this is the part where you'd bring Dan in. I should have called in sick that day. This, of course, is Dan. I think that morning it, it was mostly in the eyes that would have been kind of freaking people out. Um, very heavy eyelids, kind of probably a sunken look to them. Dan did confirm everything that Ben said and more. He's been allergic to crab and lobster since he was a kid. The night before this incident, he had eaten crab, and he got the worst reaction he'd had in years. It was a wake-up call. Not that he was going to stop eating crab and lobster. No, no, he was going to keep doing that. But now he'd do it only if I have Benadryl uh, as, a, as a sort of aperitif, and only if I have an inhaler, and just in case it were to spread to my lungs, and, um, and I have an EpiPen. An EpiPen, if you've never heard of it, is the injection that you stab yourself with in an emergency if you get a life-threatening allergic reaction. And this is his system. And he says it's working for him. And no, his doctor does not know. He risks this twice a year or so. He says his wife's not so crazy about it, partly because the Benadryl makes him really sleepy. But uh, the, 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 the poisoning myself, it's not that bad. Uh, I, like I said, I get sleepy from the Benadryl. That's the worst part is I get really tired. But if you find yourself saying the sentence, the poisoning myself is not that bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something probably to that. But, you know, I like it. What can I say? Okay. The whole show is full of these. There's one toward the end, which is really awful, and I can't recommend it. It kind of undoes what they, they're trying to say in the first place. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that we are our own worst enemies. Uh, and as far-fetched as, as this seems, and at one point in the show, uh, Ira Glasses, I, I just, looking at you doesn't make me feel so bad about myself. And I thought, you, I, I, if you were married, I'd ask to speak to his wife. Um, but the bottom line is that we're all in the same boat. It just manifests itself in different ways. And we all find ourselves doing things that we know that we really ought not to do. Now, very rarely do they manifest themselves in making us look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. They don't have a physical manifestation uh, to the wider public. Uh, but it still is just as damaging inside uh, as it is outside. And this is the struggle that St. Paul found himself in uh, in Romans chapter 7. There are a lot of people out there who are wrong uh, who will say, oh, no, 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 St. Paul 
wasn't talking about his life as a Christian. He was talking about his life before he became a Christian. Well, that's not true because the whole context of chapter 7 is within the context of his Christian life and his what he's talking about and living the gospel day in and day out. Um, but for those who say that it's not, uh, have an idea that in Christianity is primarily about victory, that it's about victory. Now, there is victory in the, Christi- in the Christian life, but what we find in Christianity is that Christianity is primarily about death and resurrection. That's the message of Christianity. It's about death and resurrection, that you have to die to yourself before you can be raised to new life. And as the articles of religion, if you look in the back of the prayer book at them, uh, Article 10, uh, it, uh, it says that even within all, I think it's Article 10, all you gurus out there, see Jack Sharman, he can correct me. He did something on burning a trailer park down in uh, the 39 articles. Um, that even, uh, it's not Article 10, I know. Uh, that even within us as Christians, um, sin doth remain. Even those of us who are regenerate, sin doth remain. And so we find ourselves in this struggle with St. Paul's, hey, this is what I know I ought to do, uh, but I find myself incapable of doing, and uh, the very thing that I don't want to do is what I find myself doing. So on the one hand, as Christians, we want to do good things. We want to feed the poor. Uh, We want to have an active and vibrant prayer life. We want to spend time in the scriptures every single day. Uh, We want to do those things, and uh, we delight in them, but we don't do them. Uh, We don't find ourselves doing them. Uh, We find ourselves uh, shirking our responsibilities, uh, and it uh, really kills us on the inside. Because normally what will happen, and this is very true if you're on a college campus as a Christian, uh, people will ask you, how is your walk with the Lord doing? Or, hey, what can I pray for you? Uh, you know, what is it that I can pray for you about? What's going on in your life? And we'll normally give an answer in Christianese. Right? We'll say, oh, pray that I just pray more. Pray that I just get into the scripture more. Now, those are true, but underneath of all of that stuff is the reality of the situation. That we find ourselves dying day after day because we find ourselves incapable of overcoming that which is underneath the surface, that which is really plaguing us. Of course, we all want a good prayer life. We all want to live life in the scriptures. Uh, But normally, uh, as St. Paul has said, um, there's a great struggle going on. In fact, he uses the language of war. There's a war between what I want to do and what I'm actually doing, where he finally cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, if you're somebody that thinks that Paul was talking about Romans 7 before uh, he became a Christian, um, you're probably not the most pastorally inclined person. Uh, You're not the person that I would want to go to uh, if I needed some comfort and some solace. Uh, Because uh, if you've ever seen, I should have played it today, but uh, there's a clip that Bob Newhart did, and he plays a psychiatrist. And this person comes in, and they lie down on the couch, and, uh, and they say, well, you know, uh, it all started when I was a child and I had a bad relationship with my parents and, and I just find myself compulsively and Bob Newhart interrupts him and says, just stop it. Just stop it. Right. And uh, oh, that it were true. Right. If uh, if you came to me and said, Andrew, I'm really struggling with this issue, uh, this sin, and I can't seem to quit it. 
Well, what if I said to you, just stop it? Just stop. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Through whom we have a victory. Right? That's... That would be totally unhelpful uh, to you, but if you've got somebody who's a fellow pilgrim on this way who, um, who can say to you, uh, I know exactly uh, what you're dealing with. It simply manifests itself uh, in a different way. Now, um, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because in the world that we live in today, especially in the church, uh, there's a great deal of confusion about, uh, I think, temptation and sin in the life of the Christian. And more often than not, we get it wrong. Because my propensity, even though I am, uh, I can certainly, uh, I'm right there with them, uh, my propensity is probably as a man, let's come up with a game plan to beat this. Right, let's, uh, let's go through all these steps, we'll make it happen, and we'll beat it, and, and all will be well. And, uh, and if you've ever tried to do uh, something uh, like that, for instance, I, I brought up last week the whole idea of a quiet time. Um, a friend of mine, we said we're going to hold each other accountable and do a quiet time every single day. And uh, it started out okay, but then I just didn't find myself waking up early in the morning to do it. And because I was so afraid that he would judge me, I, I just lied to him. You know, how was your quiet time? It was amazing. <laughs> and I feel so close to Jesus. It's so, and of course I did because I was really thinking, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, I would, just, I would just lie because I wanted people to think that I had it all together when underneath the surface I clearly didn't. And what I was looking for, because I was treating Jesus as sort of an aspirin or a help. You know, Jesus just kind of helped me out here a little bit. And I would treat it a quiet time. You know, if I do a quiet time every morning, my life will get better. My life will get better. And uh, someone sent me a, a little comic, and it has... Christians in the Colosseum in Rome and they're standing before these massive lions who are looking down at them hungrily and underneath it the caption says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> and, and that's true. That's true, but sometimes what we think of as wonderful and what the Lord thinks are two different things. But um, I find myself, like St. Paul, in this struggle and I know that I need a redeemer. I know that I need a rescuer. I don't need a life coach. Uh, but I also hope that I can be honest with Christians and say, this is my great struggle uh, without a fear of judgment. Several years ago, I was listening to the White Horse Inn, uh, and we've had several of those guys here at the Advent, and they went to an uh, evangelical pastor's conference. There were a couple thousand pastors there, and they asked them two questions. The first one do you believe in the doctrine once saved, always saved? That is, once you're a Christian, uh, are you a Christian until the end? Is there any way that you can lose your salvation? And of course, uh, eternal security uh, is a biblical doctrine. I believe it. It's true. Jesus preached it. Uh, Paul talks about it. Uh, it's absolutely true. And pretty much without fail, most of the pastors interviewed said, yes, of course, once saved, always saved. But then the white horse then asked them this next question. But what if you have a habitual sin in your life? What about your salvation then? And I mean, I've never heard so much backpedaling in my life. 
And I said, well, if it's a habitual sin, I, you know, most of the guys were at least pastoral. And they'd say, I'd, I'd sit them down and I'd try to talk to them about, uh, about how God doesn't want that sin in our life and that, that they ought to be able to overcome it. And, um, but thankfully, if you guys said, when is sin not habitual? When are you able to get up in the morning and say, today I'm not going to sin? You know, I'm going to put my best foot forward and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going, to, I'm going to be able to overcome it. And so either their congregation is faking it or they're lying to them. And a lot of big, I don't, you, we've experienced this probably here at the Advent because it's everywhere, that because a lot of people have that idea that I felt like I was saved once, but I find myself dealing with some of the same old stuff that I dealt with now that I'm a Christian um, I guess maybe I wasn't a Christian that, you know, they come into the church and they're so excited and they, you know, they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And then all, you know, they're involved in everything and all of a sudden they disappear. And you think, whatever happened to so-and-so? They just seem so excited about the Christian life and now they seem to have disappeared. Well, they didn't get this idea simply from, again, our culture, which is full of it, they got it from the church. Uh, I want to draw your attention uh, to the catechism, which this is the only time that you should ever actually look at this. Never look at it again in the back of the prayer book. And uh, here, right out of the gate, human nature. What are we by nature? We are part of God's creation made in the image of God. So far, so good. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that we are free to make choices, to love, to create, to reason, and to live in harmony with creation with God. You can feel, you know, the, the seismic shift beginning to happen. Why then do we live apart from God and out of harmony with creation? From the beginning, human beings have misused their freedom and made wrong choices. Now we're really starting to roll. Why do we not use our freedom as we should? Because we rebel against God and we put ourselves in the place of God. We sort of regain our footing there. But the bottom line is, is that if you read this, this is Bob Newhart pastoral counseling. You have a choice. You have a choice. Just stop it. How many of you know who Steve Bliss is? Anybody? He has a disease named after him. And here's the disease. Steve Bliss is a Hall of Fame pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. In fact, in, uh, game, he won Game 7 in the 1971 World Series when the Pirates played the Orioles. Uh, his lifetime ERA is just over three, uh, and which is miraculous considering what I'm about to tell you. And after Game 7, he was the hottest thing on the market. And then in 1972... It is as if Steve Blinn forgot how to pitch. He actually couldn't even throw it over the plate. He threw it behind batters. His ERA that year was 8.68 in 1972. There was nothing physically wrong with him. Uh, he, he just, it's inexplicable. And to this day, whenever this happens with a baseball player, they say that he has Steve Flass syndrome. Pretty remarkable. Well, uh, he's been so studied and sports psychologists have come to find that part of Steve Blass's problem is that when he started really messing up and incapable of throwing it over the plate, he would go to these sports psychologists and they would start talking to him about technique. 
you know, you need to think about technique. Now, if you're uh, into sports that require technique, uh, especially if you're a golfer, right, how much does that benefit you to think about the technical aspects of the golf swing while you're swinging? It's actually detrimental. It's actually detrimental to start to critique and point out all the little things in the technique and for you to dwell on them. In fact, sports psychologists have now said, and there's a journal coming out pretty soon in uh, the Journal of Sports Psychiatry, that say that what helps most people is to actually focus on something different, something totally unrelated to your technique. Well, I, I heard this and was reading the, the um, preview for this article that's coming out, and I thought, well, isn't that Romans 7 writ large? where the focus of the Christian ought not to be internal looking at ourselves, thinking, how am I going to make these choices? The focus ought to be on Jesus Christ. Now, the tough part of that is, is that when our focus is on Jesus Christ, uh, he is perfection. And that brings even more to light our imperfections. St. Paul says in Romans 7, look, before I knew what the law was, I thought I was pretty good. I had it going on. I was I didn't know what it meant to covet what it meant to covet until uh, you know I just thought that was uh, sound investment policy uh, until uh, until I heard the law thou shalt not covet and then all of a sudden all these things that I thought were okay about me sprang to life like little demons and I realized I have some real issues now the opposite side of that though is that even though that was oppressive and that brought about death. Right, that kills you. If I said, let's focus on your technique. I've shared this story before, but it's so good. I'm going to share it again. Uh, Lauren and I went, did I say this about the rehearsal dinner last week? Best, terrible rehearsal dinner story in history. So if you're not married, and just don't do this. And if you are married and this happened to you, I'm very sorry. There's no going back. Lauren and I went to a rehearsal dinner, and the couple decided that at the rehearsal dinner, they were going to solicit marital advice from people. Now, I love rehearsal dinners because that's the time to really roast them and let them have it. And it's supposed to be fun. Instead, it was people getting up, and most of the things, I mean, we're good, like love one another. You know, you're not going to object to that or, you know, uh, be patient with one another. And, um, uh, but I didn't like it because it excluded a great number of the young people there who were not married. I mean, they, thankfully, some of the girls uh, had the guts to stand up and, and say what they wanted to say. Uh, but I thought that it really reached its pinnacle when a young guy stood up. He had this lovely, beautiful wife who was looking. One of these days when I tell these, this story, they'll be in the congregation. We'll see how it goes. And uh, this beautiful wife looked up at him just beaming, ready for this profound wisdom that her new husband uh, was about to impart to this almost married couple. And he said, you know, one of the things that I find the most helpful in our marriage is that once a week, and you could see the countenance of the wife begin to change ever so slightly. He said, my wife and I sit down together, and at this point the blood had completely drained from her face. And he said, and we go over the week, and we talk about where we have let one another down for the week and how we might be able to improve in the future. And he says, I have found that very beneficial. <laughs> well, you can tell that, that might be the highlight of his week, but what is it for her? It's hell. That is the part of the day of the week that she, you know, she's 
probably thinks, you know, I don't know what she's thinking, but, um, you know, as he's sitting there saying, now let me tell you uh, where I feel like you might have fallen short. Let me give you some constructive criticism. She's thinking about, I'm about to criticize you with a hammer on your head. Um, And you know that she doesn't find it helpful at all. What it actually does is it reminds her of her own inadequacies. And while he's recounting where she has fallen short, uh, she is screaming inside, who will rescue me from this body of death? And who will remove the body of death of my husband when I finish with him? Um, And what else was amazing about it is you know that he was saying that it was great uh, because she lied to him. And she told him that he was wonderful and that he was great. And and that actually uh, gave him a glowing beam. Uh, She imputed righteousness to him that was not his. Uh, now, I, I think at some point um, he needs to be brought down a couple notches because if he thinks that's helpful, then, then, he, would be, uh, then he would be wrong. Uh, but he is really just living life according uh, to the catechism of uh, the 1979 prayer book and uh, listening to what these pastors tell him. Uh, that yes, you're once saved, always saved, but if you're in habitual sin, uh, then we need to question your commitment. We need to question your commitment to the Lord, and and, uh, maybe you haven't uh, handed uh, your whole life over to Him. I've been told that. I was struggling with something one time to to make a decision, and uh, somebody asked me, you know, have, have you, is it possible that you have some areas of your life that you haven't submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And I thought, you know, do you want to come explore the dark, unevangelized continents of my heart? Come aboard. You know, if you really want to see that. Um, uh, but the idea that, you know, if, if only uh, I would do this, then God would show his grace and favor and mercy uh, towards me. Uh, but thanks be to God when I open up the scriptures, it says, uh, while we were yet well behaved, uh, while we were yet the perfect spouse, uh, while we were yet... Uh, good in the eyes of the pastor and all those around us while we were yet uh, getting up and doing all these godly things in the morning uh, that that we ought to do. Um, Christ died for us? No, while we were yet sinners. That's the amazing thing about the gospel, that uh, the worst that we have ever treated God was when? When we killed his son, when we killed him, right? And yet, when did God love us more than he ever has in the history of the world? When we hated him more than we ever have. That's the gospel message, that there is nothing that is outside the realm of God's grace. That no matter what you do in in quiet, uh, that if you are in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And part of the key to that, as we mentioned last week with George Whitfield, is the struggle. St. Paul is not saying... You know, I do the very thing that I don't want to do, uh, and I don't do the very thing that I want to do. Um, I kind of like this body of death. Uh, Jesus, just hang out over there for a minute. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying at all that he's comfortable, but what is he saying? I am so afflicted and so uncomfortable uh, with my sinful self that I need a rescuer. I need someone to enter outside of the equation. Uh, and let's, in using uh, Paul's all terms, can I do that here? Uh, the gospel, the alien gospel has crashed into the Roswell, New Mexico of our hearts. 
That's exactly what has happened, that something wholly outside of us has come into our lives and we are forgiven. But the problem is, is that we, that's not how we deal with one another. That's not how we deal with ourselves. And um, Frank Limehouse um, um, brought this up, I believe, when he uh, compared uh, some of the liturgical innovations that were made for the 1979 prayer book uh, and the confession of sin. Um, right. Uh, and so when um, the new right came out, right two, um, this is what the new confession of sin sounded like. Uh, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, that's not a bad confession. But now listen to this confession. Most merciful, almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, baker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life to the honor and glory of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, if you're living a Romans 7 life, which is the more helpful confession? Which is the confession that talks about rescue? Not just deed. All right, God, you know what? I've done some, uh, some pretty bad things. You know, things I've done, things I've left undone. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. Um, I, I know that I need to get better. Um, I want to walk in your ways. Uh, I mean, there is, I mean it's, it's a valid confession, but it lacks the depth. Because what it doesn't address is the idea of our nature, of who we are as human beings. Isn't it amazing? You know, there's this idea that the world is getting better and better and that we're getting smarter and smarter. But isn't it incredible that someone who wrote this confession in 1549 was more in touch with the human condition than someone that wrote that prayer in 1973? Uh, if anything, we've, we've backtracked. Uh, and... Uh, this confession allows us to be honest with God, honest with ourselves, and honest with one another in a way that is refreshing. Not, I think it's the new episode. I could die every time I see this. It's amazing that our TV is still in one piece. Um, but there's the new advert for, um, I think it's Big Brother, the new episode of Big Brother. And the guy gets on there and he says, uh, in order for this to work, you need sin. And I'm a sinner. And, you know, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of a joke. And I thought, well, uh, you're okay. Um, I, didn't, I, won't, I can't say what I, what I said uh, in front of you. And so, um, um, but even in our confession uh, for morning prayer, which right one is a good confession, um, but listen uh, to the old prayer book. Um, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. 
But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Right? I mean, psychologists would probably tell you that this is not a good prayer to pray. Um, the Bob Newhart's of the world, uh, that you need to get in touch uh, with your positive attributes. Uh, what can you possibly uh, contribute to the situation? Uh, but what we find in life um, is Romans 7 uh, in the Christian life that um, our own devices won't progress us any closer to Jesus Christ uh, than in fact he has to come to us. And when he comes to us, as Romans 7 leaves off and Romans 8 picks up, there is now no, what? Condemnation. There's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not, now there's not as much condemnation as there used to be. Right? Not, there's no condemnation in these areas, but this other area, just hold out for a little bit. Uh, but St. Paul's saying there is now no condemnation. None. Full stop. End of story. And what would that look like in your life? If you lived a life that was without condemnation from God, from yourself, from your neighbor? Well, one, you'd be a well-balanced human being, right? Uh, but more importantly, too, you'd be changed. You'd be changed because God has given you a new heart. And now you can begin to, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You'll be able to live life and freedom, knowing that it's not up to you, that it's up to God, and God does it for you. And the Holy Spirit working in you begins to change you. Now, next week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what this looks like in the details. I'm going to be talking about Levi Ives, who is a really great character from history who is often overlooked. Um, but he was fine. So I'll just give you a little... Teaser, he was fined several times by the court in Williamsburg, Virginia, for profanity in the courtroom. Um, and so that's, that'll be a fun guy to look at. Uh, and this, he was uh, back in the 1700s as well. Questions, comments, concerns? We're at the end of, uh, of our time together. Just looking for one sinner. No disagreements, Andrew. You're crazy. Overstatement. I'm not like the guy who eats crab. Okay. Well, I guess I would. The, the, clerk, the world got the clergy to change their mind, and, and so right. we we struggle as individuals coming up against the world demand on our actions. Yeah, the gospels. I mean, this stuff has been around for since time immemorial, like, you know, you can, you know, just make the right choices and everything will be okay. And, um, and it's just past, it's, it's cruel. It's pastorally insensitive. And um, uh, it's, yes, it's, it's a case where, um, because the gospel's counterintuitive, there's no way that we could rationally come to the conclusion that, that Paul and, and, and comes to and that Jesus preaches that God will love you when you're unlovable, and actually it's in your brokenness that you find freedom. Freedom is in weakness, not in strength. I heard someone once say that God is so for you that he is against himself. 
right? Because God's demand is still up here. The bar is still set high. It's, his standard is holiness. His standard is perfection. But his love for you is so great that he's actually against himself. And we see that on the cross. Okay. Anybody here, you know, crab allergies, lactose intolerant? We should put There's a lady on there who's lactose intolerant and eats pizza three times a week. Um, gosh. Uh, I will say this one last thing, just something funny I forgot to say. Um, I was in uh, Las Vegas once. Yes, I've been there several times. Uh, Las Vegas once, and the little, uh, not the monarch, what's the um, marquee at Caesar's Palace said, um, Somebody save me from myself. So someone put up some big bucks uh, who, who knew rock bottom, and I thought, I have a picture of it, and I thought, of all places, this is, this is where this message ought to be heard. But you know what? We're in the same boat. So, so I'm going to get Vulcan to hold something uh, up on Red Mountain. If the price is right, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that in spite of our brokenness, uh, you love us and you love us even through that. And Lord, you give us new hearts. Um, Lord, that you would open our eyes uh, to see uh, that it's not about inward uh, speculation or uh, life plans, but it's about an ever, uh, just ever relying on you and your unchanging grace and your love for us. It's not circumstantial. uh, It's not conditional. Uh, but it's always there. And so, Lord, that we might have uh, your rescue, uh, your gospel ever seared on our hearts, and that we might always know that when the world comes up against us, and even when the church comes up against us preaching a false gospel, that we would know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.